We have a great day to uh, be together. I got all kinds of material for you, but you're going to need your Bibles out and the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door if you want to grab those. If you are brand new to us, there should be a Bible under the seat in front of you. And I know that I know I, I know that all of you remember everything I said two weeks ago when I was on series. Don't get me wrong. I understand that you guys live, eat, and breathe off every word that I say and that you memorize it all. But just in case someone forgot over Easter what I was trying to talk about two weeks ago, I'm going to do a little recap for you. Is that all right? I understand you already know it all. I understand that you all memorized it. But just in case we forgot, I'm going to do a little recap. But before we get to that, I want to draw your attention to the fill in the blank and introduce this series portion to you. We are in part two of our ever-present king series through the book of Habakkuk. And I entitled the message, You Wouldn't Believe It If I Told You. Now you'll understand in a moment why I called it that. But I want to begin with these thoughts. I believe that the sterilization of God and the Bible is not only frustrating. I believe it is dangerous. I believe that we must not try to force God into our modern American paradigm. I think that God is not limited to modern refinements. God is not held to PC movements. And what I mean by all this is that what we try to do, or even accidentally do, is that we try to look at the Bible and God through our modern cultural lenses. What that ends up doing is that we try to make God fit our world. We're reading an ancient document where he was trying to talk to people in their language at that time, and then we read it as if he should be talking to us today. And we end up saying, God, you must be wrong. Oh, one day God will grow up and he'll become more modern right? Because we're getting more and more refined. We're getting more and more civilized. And we look at the Bible as archaic. First of all, I do not believe that we are advancing, becoming better people as just human beings. I think that there were extraordinary human beings 3,000 years ago. I think there was extraordinary beings 6,000 years ago. I don't think that we're becoming better people. I think we're doing things faster. I think we're doing some things better. I think we are learning a little bit from our mistakes. But I believe that when God spoke to these people back in the day, I don't think he was looking at a different quality of people. I think he was looking at the same. Here, here's the challenge. When we read God through our cultural lenses, we try to shape him into our image. Give me an example. There are some cultures in our planet right now that are very reserved. So, for example, some of our most beautiful Asian cultures have a high regard for containment, refinement, and being appropriate in certain circumstances and being more reserved. Then you go to a place like Italy, where in Italy everyone is yelling all the time. Everyone is constantly saying, no, 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 all the time. Like, no matter what we're talking about, everybody's yelling. And it is a very boisterous environment. A lot of confrontation, a lot of sorting things out verbally. So which one is God? Because when we try to look through and say, well, if it was really God, he would act like this. We start putting our mandates onto the Bible and our mandates onto God. Let's say you grew up in a nice culture, right, where everyone was nice. You didn't talk about bad things. You, you kind of swept things under the rug. Everything was very nice. Everything was clean, and you only were about positive things. You're not going to be able to read the Bible very long before that gets completely blown apart. But if you only listen to pastors who agree with you, if you only read commentaries that agree with you, if you only listen to podcasts that reiterate the nice Jesus model, then when God does something in your life, 
you say that must not be God because he doesn't fit in my neat little box. I think that is not only frustrating, I think it's dangerous. I think that God is God and whatever way he behaves is appropriate for God. And I think that he does things that you would not imagine. I think that we need to make sure that we are always in the word, not just listening to regurgitations of the word. Does that make sense? Because you can sift and sort. If you only know the Christmas Max Lucado God, y'all are following me? Then you're going to be really upset when he allows trauma to happen in your life. If you only have a harsh God from this other teacher, then you're going to have a really hard time when God is calling you to tenderness with people that you don't agree with. We have to read God and let him emerge out of his word for who he is, not just our cultural setting. Why is this important? The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. God's plans will shock you. God's plans will shock you. I don't think it's rocket science for me to say God doesn't tend to do things the way we want him to do them. Yeah? You all agree with that? I had a whole week full of that. Uh, Here's kind of how it went. So on, I'm trying to remember if it was Wednesday or Thursday. I think it was Thursday now that I'm looking at it. It was Thursday. I got a call from one of our elders that was at the hospital with one of the single moms here at this church. I don't, I don't have a, a, a possibility or a freedom to visit people in the hospital. This was a unique situation. And there was a dramatic ICU on life support situation that one of our elders was dealing with personally. And, I, and so I went and I visited one of the mamas from here at this church. Now, you all know I have a super soft heart for single moms, right? That's, that's a big deal to me. And I went in to go see Sue McKernan. Now, Sue's been around the church for a while. She has a 10-year-old. She has a 13-year-old. She has a 17-year-old. Now, Sue was one of those people that got the flu that went bad. You all remember that? Yeah, we were always seeing about him in the news. Well, what happened was is Sue got the flu, and it wasn't treated appropriately early on. It then went into pneumonia into her lungs, which was not treated appropriately, and she went septic. She's now on life support. Now, here's the challenge for me, because I had just told our staff two days earlier about the miraculous recovery of Sue, because she had been going downhill And then there was this marvelous reversal where she was sitting up and doing really well. She was doing so good, they sent her home from the ICU to a rehab facility, not home, but to a rehab facility. But within 24 hours, she was worse than she began. Everything changed again. And now, all of a sudden, she's on a ventilator. Both lungs are completely destroyed. Okay, now, let me explain kind of my perspective and my worldview as I was walking into the ICU. Y'all know what ICU looks like. Yeah, I don't know how many of you have not been there, but it looks like a big aquarium, right? You walk in, and there's just glass walls, right, so the nurses can keep an eye on everybody. And so they all have the big sliding doors. And so you're walking through, and you see patient after patient after patient, almost in all these glass casings. Now, let me give you my perspective. I read the Bible a lot, so I believe the impossible, okay? I mean, that's just my, my normal is supernatural, okay? Secondly, I read comic books. Now, that is, that is questionable at best. You understand what I'm saying? I won't get into too much of it to save you and to keep my respect. Number three, I watch a lot of TV and movies. Man, so I have the coolest scenarios in my head. 
When you blend all three of those together, I have an awesome amount of ideas for, the God, for our Lord to do. Uh, and so here's how I pictured going into the ICU. What I wanted to do, the minute I walked in, you know how you have to call in and they, they kind of buzz you in and then the doors kind of open and now suddenly you're in the, the, the place? I walked in and I saw all the rooms and I was like, all right, Lord, here we go. That this is not just about Sue. Now I need everyone in every one of these places healed, right? So I'm like, God, here's how the scenario could go. I mean, I don't know, Lord, if you can picture it with me here, right? But I'm now going to design out like the coolest thing ever. So I'm like, Lord, as I'm praying, and I'm praying ferociously for every single individual in that ICU as I'm walking through just to get to Sue's aquarium, right? So I'm walking through and I'm like, Lord, here's how it's got to go. Like I'm praying and as I'm moving forward, like people are sitting up in every one, you know, and they're getting out and they're like, why do I need these cords? You know, and they're, they're ripping out catheters and, you know, it's, it sounds cooler in my mind than probably it would be in real life. And, and as I'm praying, all I can hear is the deep. I get to Sue's room and I see her lying there. I go and I grab her hand. She grabs my hand and kind of tries to look up, smile a little bit, and she's back down. As I'm praying new lungs into her, I just hear the machine. I was there for quite some time, praying, praying, talking, laughing, so that she would have something to hear that was fun and jovial. What I wanted was God, I wanted this on the news that night. Roosevelt ICU was cleaned out today. (laughs) People in gowns were running everywhere. Right? I mean, that's what I wanted. That's what I pictured in my mind. Sue's still in the ICU today. And there's not a lot of change. That's not the scenario I wanted. And as a matter of fact, it's like I kept talking to God about how easy it would be if he would do it a different way. I, 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 was, I was trying to sell him my ideal. God, this is such a beautiful opportunity for evangelism. How many lives would be transformed? How much glory would be had? And I, I, it's hard for me to go in any hospital without that attitude, right? I mean, where I'm like, let's just empty this place out. Like, let's go, Lord. So far, he hasn't let me do that. That same day where I had come from was I had just come from Meadowview. We had a a meeting with about 25 leaders, some from downtown, some from Meadowview. We met in Meadowview where Stefan Clark was shot. The church that we met in looks over the house where it happened. And we're having this dialogue and all we can talk about is confusion. What are the facts? What really happened? We have police officers devastated by what occurred. We have family devastated by what occurred. We got everybody confused and lost and frustrated. Nobody knows what to think anymore. It's polarizing churches. It's messing up our community. Now we're having, you know, we have big protests. We have these things going and everybody is hurting. And I'm sitting there at ground zero And I was like, Lord, does it have to go like this? Like, can't can't we as, you know, here's what would be awesome. We come together as church leaders and we come up with solutions from Jesus. And then we all go out and everybody's convinced on what the great ideas are. And that somehow there is healing in the communities. There's transformation. There's advancement. People are beginning to feel more confident and healthy and strong. 
And this is how I picture it. And I'm once again, I'm trying to tell God the right way to do it. And it's not going like that. By the time we got done with the meeting, half the leaders were more discouraged than when they arrived. We all don't even know what to say. We're all trying to talk over each other and we don't quite know what the other person's perspective is. And there's ignorance aplenty. And I was thinking, God, does it have to go like this? This is all in one day. And, and I realized that I have to default back to what I know to be true. Our God is an ever-present king. He hasn't gone anywhere. He is on the job. But the way that he's working it out, the way that he's solving it, the way that he's digging under and handling issues, even though it's perfect and right, it is not one I can track on. It's not the one that I drew up for him. He's not following the script. And it makes me question his nature. And that's unacceptable. God needs to have the freedom to be God. And God needs to be the good guy, whether or not we can track from the dot to dot to dot. But wow, it's tough, isn't it? You see, now, when you're looking around at the pain when you're looking around at the confusion, when you look around at our nation and you start saying so many things seem to be going wrong, things seem to be going worse, leaders seem to be less capable than they used to be. And when we keep seeing all this, you now understand the mindset of Habakkuk. Because that's how he felt. Once again, recapping for you. Habakkuk is a prophet that lived 2,600 years ago in the Middle East. He was part of Israel that had been divided 80 years prior, north and south. Uh, excuse me, it wasn't 80 years ago. It was a long time before that. They ended up getting uh, cut. Uh, the north got wiped out 80 years ago. Because when it was north and south, they both were disobeying the Lord. The north was worse than the south. God ended up having the Assyrian Empire come in in 722 B.C. and wipe out the north. They took them captive, they took them into exile, and they just devastated them. The south, where Jerusalem was, was called Judah. They were still around but headed in the same direction. The nation was no longer the beautiful Israel that Habakkuk remembered. And he began to cry out to God and said, God, my nation is broken. Everything seems wrong. The leadership is wrong. The systems are wrong. There's violence everywhere. Justice is nowhere. And I don't know what's going on. When are you going to fix our nation? God, I'm praying and I'm praying and I'm crying out and I just want you to solve it. Shut down the bad guys and release the good guys. That's how he felt. It sounded like this. If you want to look at Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1, kind of a weird book to try to find, right? So what, it's around page 785. If you drop your Bible open in the middle, you've got to go to the right. It's about a little more than two-thirds of the way through the Bible. If you hit Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you went too far. All right, so back up. It's a little baby book, a little tiny thing in there. Remember, the Bible is 66 books, right? So whenever I talk about it, it's a tiny book there. It's a collection of books, all right? Here's how he said it. This is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. You ever felt that way about our nation? 
You ever felt like things are headed towards the toilet? Have you ever been frustrated by leadership? Have you ever said, God, when are you going to fix America? When are you going to fix our nation? Like we had some cool times. We had some periods and eras and pieces of our nation that were cool. Now, some parts have always been broken. But God, where's your revival? When are you going to fix it? When are you going to put the good guys in charge? When are you going to take this this one corrupt system? When are you going to take this corrupt system? When are you going to resolve these things? God, there's violence on our streets. There's violence in our homes. There's violence all over. When, God, are you going to solve it? You ever feel that way? That's what Habakkuk felt. And then God answered him. Now, I understand that for a lot of us, when we go in because of how we expect God to answer, we'll go into prayer time, we'll get our little coffee mug and our right next to our Jesus Calling book, and then we get, you know, get our little Bible out and everything, we sit down and we go, all right, God, I'm ready, talk. And then it's like, silence, cricket, cricket, nothing's happening, right? Okay, well, this time, God spoke, and he spoke very clearly. The problem was his solution was nothing at all like what Habakkuk wanted. This is what he said. Verse 5, Habakkuk, look among the nations and see. Wonder about it and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Of course, there's the title of the message, yes? You wouldn't believe it if I told you. What does that mean? It means, hang on, kid, it's about to get rocky. I have a solution. You keep asking me, don't I care about your nation? Yes, I do. You keep saying, don't you have a solution? Yes, I do. You keep saying, there's violence everywhere. Aren't you going to stop it? Yes, I will. I'm hearing you. I understand the problems. And I do have a solution. Would you like to know what my solution is? And then he said this. Verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. I think that our modern day sensibilities do not understand how shocking that is to an ancient Jew. What did he just say? Uh, you tell me there's problems in Israel. All right, I got a solution. I'm going to raise up a pagan nation and they're going to wipe you out. That was not at all what he was praying for. And he had so much nationalistic pride. The ancient Jewish people were so proud, they thought they had the corner market on God. They thought everyone else was missing the boat. And the idea that God would use another nation, a nation that does not serve God, to bring correction on God's people and devastation was absolutely mind-blowing. God, no, you can't do it this way. I was just talking to you. I need you to fix it my way. Like, like there's so many. Here's how I picture it, God. You've seen the movie, right? Like revival. Like we have, you know, somebody steps in, a new king, and we have reform, and everybody's excited about you again, God. It's so easy for you to do. Why wouldn't you do it like that? Because God's plans will shock you. They're never like what you think. Do you know anything about the history of the Neo-Babylonian Empire? Here's something fascinating. God said, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Here's the story. It was nothing short of an act of God. Why? Because here's the facts. The Chaldean people went from utter, uh, excuse me, absolute and utter uh, we didn't even know who you were, obscurity, and became world dominant in 20 years. Okay, how do you go from nothing to world domination in 20 years? No way. That's a God thing. First of all, it's hard to even become a nation in 20 years. 
Second of all, the leading nation that you not only shut down the Assyrian Empire, but you shut down Egypt as well. Like you're doing domination of the Middle East in 20 years in an old school model. That's God. The Chaldeans were raised up. How did it happen? It kind of happened like this. The Assyrian Empire, who ran all of Babylon and everything, they were having all this internal strife. They were playing whack-a-mole, right? So when you shove down a bunch of people groups, they all start popping up in rebellion. And you're like hitting them with little hammer things, trying to, and they all keep popping up again. So they're trying to play whack-a-mole, and eventually, one from within their own system, the Chaldean people said, we're going to lead a rebellion, a guy named Nabopolassar. All the other people said, you know what? I think you're probably our best shot. All of us will gather together and back you. And he rose up and led a rebellion and eventually got through, ended up becoming dominant and shutting down the entire region around them. I mean, he was taking Nineveh. He was taking all these massive capitals. How did he do that? God. So what were they like? Well, that's where God explains the tools that he's going to be using. Here's the nation he's going to use against his own chosen people. Here we go, verse 7. The Chaldeans are dreaded. That means overwhelming trouble. They are fearsome, meaning awe-inspiring force. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. It means they view themselves as autonomous, self-centered, and self-focused. They only care about them. Their horses are swifter than leopards. They come fast. They come agile. More fierce than the evening wolves. They are vicious. Their horsemen press proudly on, for they are arrogant. Their horsemen come from afar, because they can move their army at will and rapidly. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour, meaning you're never going to see them coming. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. What does that mean? Habakkuk, you were just explaining that your country is full of violence. I'm going to bring in a far more violent people and crush all of you. Wait, God, that, that, that's a terrible idea. They gather captives like sand, meaning they scoop them up in heaps. At kings, they scoff, and at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. They are afraid of no one and nothing. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. They are unrestrained. They are self-justified. They have no problem decimating you. They have no moral compass. They don't care about me as God. They completely only view power. That's who I'm going to use. Do you understand how shocking this is? But God, we wanted our stuff fixed. Why would you do that? He said, trust me. All right, so let's look through this. The Bible says that the people that were coming were irritated, ill-tempered, and irrational. They were all passion, not a lot. I mean, they were brilliant strategists, don't get me wrong. Nebuchadnezzar, who eventually takes over and rules for 43 years, amazing builder. He's one that built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, right? So one of the seven wonders of the world. I mean, this is a huge deal. Do you all know where Babylon is? It's an ancient ancient city uh, it's in iraq right so one of the saddam hussein plans was to rebuild babylon how'd that go for him not super well so he's gone now babylon has always been around this is one of the upsurging waves was the neo-babylonian empire all right so it says that they were agitated people and a little out of their minds y'all know remember anything about nebuchadnezzar in the bible He's the guy that hung out with Daniel. You remember that? Okay, he's the one who lost his mind, the Bible says, for seven years. Now, most scholars believe it means seven span or seven times, which would be much more like seven months. 
this king goes from being a proud, arrogant, horrible man to growing out his nails, having dreads, and running through the fields with the animals. He goes completely insane. This guy's all over the map. Then he's restored back by God, and he ends up calling out and saying, God is the one true God. I mean, this guy is all over the place. That is these people. That's why they rose quickly and they fell quickly. It says that they were cruel and abusive. Here's what history tells us and what tradition says. History tells us that when Nebuchadnezzar finally got agitated at Jerusalem because the, the Jews were messing with him. They were rebelling and trying to partner with Egypt. When he got so mad, he laid an 18-month siege and decimated the city and wiped the whole thing out. Just ripped everything down and carried off 10,000 into exile. We'll talk about that in a moment. When he came in, the king at the time was Zedekiah. Here's how he handled it. Now, I don't know if he was just irritated because of the rebellion or if this was standard practice. But he took Zedekiah's children all in front of him and executed them all, forcing him to watch. And the minute the last one was killed, he gouged out his eyes, put him in chains and made him walk back to Babylon. When he took out the 10,000 tradition tells us when they were being marched around, he would march them naked. So much so that his own generals said none of them are going to make it because they're all exposed to the elements. You have to put clothes on them. He would have feasts while they were naked and chained and shaking on the ground. He would just have a feast in front of them, his, his men. It is tradition says that he tore up the Torah, the holy book of the Jews, and put it into sandbags and just made them carry it just to, just to be a jerk. That it says that he would make them carry the trees that he wanted to move into his nation. He would use them kind of like pack mules, meaning they're just prisoners of war. He had them carry millstones. He had all this stuff. One tradition, and I think it's just lore. It's probably not. This isn't how it went down. But he, uh, the Jews wrote, when we got there, our young men were so good looking, which I think is pretty funny. Our young men were so good looking, we inflamed all the women of Babylon. So much so that they took out the best looking ones, put them on the ground and stomped on them and mutilated them until they were dead. These are the people God is using. What? God, why would you do that? The Bible says that they were blind, bold and prideful. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was the one that set up a golden statue that he wanted everyone to worship him because he was a god. This guy's unhinged, man. The reason why they fell apart is that they only advanced. They never backed up and, and protected everything that they had. So they rose up so quickly and they died so quickly as a nation. Because God had one purpose for them. Do this job. Why would God use these guys? All right, so let's talk about it. Spend the rest of our time with this. When God uses bad guys to discipline good guys. Hmm. Do you realize that sometimes it's not about rewarding the bad guys, right? Sometimes God's just using them. Uh, I've taught many times from this pulpit that the reason why the devil and the demons still exist is God's using them as pawns. The minute he's done with them, they go bye-bye. The whole purpose they're around is that God is using their wickedness for a purpose. It's like he's moving and maneuvering a flood of water. He's steering it. He's letting them do what they want to do. Pharaoh always wanted to be a jerk to Moses. So he allowed him to do that, but he steered him where he wanted him to go. And when it was time for him to go, he was gone. This is how God moves wicked people around in this world. They're pawns. God's still in control. They're not in control. 
Do you remember when Israel got into the promised land? God said to them over and over and over, please do not think that you're getting in here because you're the good guys. You're not the good guys. You are rebellious and stiff-necked people. The only reason you're getting in here is, number one, I'm judging the people that are in here right now. I already worked with them for hundreds and hundreds of years. They don't want me. I'm moving them out. You're moving in. Number two, I promised your forefather Abraham, who is a good guy, that you would get in here. So I'm putting you in here. But do not say, we're the good guys, everyone else are the bad guys. That is incorrect. Here's, let me tell you the rest of the story. Here's the shocking truth. This Babylonian invasion, taking the south out in 586 B.C., taking them into captivity into Babylon was the best thing ever for the Jewish nation. How? Check out how God worked it. This is super weird. When Nebuchadnezzar came through, he took out the rich. When he took out the rich and humiliated them and put them in Babylon, there was, he left the money. There was a reallocation of funds back into the poor, which is kind of an unusual thing to do. So they started trying to rebuild in their economy. It was still difficult. A famine hit. So it wasn't awesome, but it reshifted some things. The rich were taken, and as bad as it was, they were allowed in Babylon to stay together as a group. They were able to worship normally as they wanted. They were able to become stronger. In all of Israel's historical documents, they knew that they were there because they rebelled against God. And revival hit. They wanted God more than ever before. God only took them out for 70 years. And then rose up, what, King Darius and Cyrus, those guys, and let the Jews go back home. And with Ezra and Nehemiah, they got to rebuild their city. And they were more Jewish, more God-honoring than they ever were in hundreds of years before. It was the right decision. But boy, did it look wrong. Everything about it seemed wrong, bad, nasty. God, you're doing it wrong. Am I? You mean I'm not doing it like you want me to do it? Is that what you're telling me? No, I'm doing it right. I know how to change my people. All right. Let's make it more personal, right? Talk about a global stage. Have you ever seen a terrible, horrible regime get replaced by another that ended up being worse than the first? Man, like all the time. Really? Let's look at it for us. Oh my gosh, Al-Qaeda. They are the worst. Hack. Oh my gosh, ISIS popped up. They are the worst, right? It's like, once again, let's play the whack-a-mole game. You hit one, bloop, another one pops up. And it's worse than the last one. Uganda. Boy, you have terrible leadership. Oh, good, we have a new regime. Oh, shoot, it's worse than the last one. I mean, it keeps happening all over the world. So you go, God, really? You can't get good people in power. Here's a question I think you should ask. It's a little better. What is God doing to prepare a nation to want a good man or woman in charge? How about that? You want to know why those people are in power? Because a nation didn't care enough to not have them there. God is stirring the hearts of the people. And he's going, listen, what do you want? Because your value system put this person in power. Do you understand that? You don't like that? We need to change some other core things. Because I'm not happy with it either. What I'm telling you is, it's what you want. We need to get them out. And I need my people to be significantly agitated to where they are going to rise up and bring about an appropriate revolution. Because right now, we just don't care enough. All right, let's bring it into America. 
regardless of what you think about the political climate and this and that, here's what I believe. God is doing something with America, and America needs to learn a thing or two about what we value. What we value is super weird, y'all. Our current situation is a reflection where a lot of the nation is choosing to put its focus. What is the outcome of that? At some point, we in the church need to figure out what we really desire. And because I'll tell you, it's not that God can't get good people in play. It's we won't support good people getting into play. We're always complaining that it didn't go our way. Are we supporting good people? Are we supporting right people? Are we supporting godly people? Are we supporting good leaders? Let's make it more personal, yeah? Anybody uncomfortable yet? Good, let's make it worse. Here's something interesting. Let's talk about our lives. I know thousands of people because of what I do, right? Like I know more about their lives, like all of y'all. I know some stuff about your lives. I, and I've talked with tens and hundreds of thousands of people through my lifetime. And I've never met someone on the wrong side of a court case. It's, I mean, just sheer statistics is stunning. I have never had someone come up to me and say, I'm in the middle of a court case and I'm the bad guy. No one has ever said that to me. They're always, I have only met 100% people where everything else is unjust. It's shocking. I must only know the best people in the entire world. It doesn't matter whether it's a child custody case. It doesn't matter whether it's a divorce proceeding. It doesn't matter whether or not it's a business dealing. Everyone is coming to me, Pastor, I need prayer because I'm going into court because the bad guys are going to win. We're the good guys. Really? Every time? Come on. Is it possible that sometimes we're the bad guys? Is it possible that in our limited view, we're looking at it and we're saying they must be the bad guys, but if we blew our view out a little bit bigger, we would see that we're the bad guys? Let's say that you want to go to court and get what's coming to you. Meanwhile, society is deteriorating. Meanwhile, greater things are falling apart. Let's say you do get back at your ex, but your children suffer for it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is it possible that the other side of the court case is going to their pastor and praying against you? See, I'm not sure all the time that we are the good guys all the time. I think sometimes we're the bad guys, but we intend well. Let me give you a scenario. I shared this with my staff on Tuesday. If this was a devotional that popped in my head, it might be helpful for you. Do you remember the story when King David came to his prophet Nathan and he said, hey, Nate, I got an idea. It's like, what's that, Dave? Well, I want to build God a house. See, here's the thing. I got a pretty awesome house. Look at my palace. What? Right. And. I have this beautiful design that I want to create like the most beautiful temple ever. It's going to be awesome. Do you think that's a good idea? What do you think? What did Nathan say? Absolutely. You bet King Dave, you go for it, brother. You're on it, right? Like unselfishness, all into God. Yeah, let's do this. That night, God came to Nathan and said, what? Uh, Excuse me, buddy. Did you check with me? He just asked you a question. You were supposed to speak for me. He's not allowed to build me a house. As a matter of fact, his son's going to build me a house. And yes, it's going to be awesome. He does not get to build me a house. Why didn't you tell him he could? Because let me ask you another question. When did I ever ask anybody for a house? I appreciate David has this whole idea that somehow I need a sofa and a TV. I don't care. I don't. Oh, I'm in a tent. I don't live here. This doesn't matter to me. You keep trying to put your stuff on me like I need more of your stuff. I don't need more of your stuff. You know what I'd rather have than a house? Your heart. Let me ask you a question. Why did Nathan tell him yes? 
I'm going to guess one of two things. Either he was just looking and seeing that David was rolling, right? Like David's in a good place. He's doing something unselfish. You go, Dave. Woo! Maybe that was it. Or maybe he wanted to be the guy that would give good news. He wanted to be the backup friend, right? Got to be the encouraging one. But what's the problem is when he tried to be the good guy, he was the bad guy. He was supposed to speak for God. All right, let's make it more personal. You ever gone to coffee with your friends and they started unloading about what's going on in their scenario? And you're the super supportive friend that constantly goes, yeah, 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 right? So they're gonna, you're going to go to coffee and they're going to start talking about their husband. My husband is a dude, 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 right? And he's this. And then you chime in and go, yeah, not only that, but he's lazy, you know, and you're just like, yeah. And, and you're doing that and you're bonding and, and everybody's like, yeah, let's get another latte. And everybody's amped and... I think it's beautiful that y'all bonded. You know what you just did? Wreck a marriage. Okay, I appreciate you want to be the good, supportive friend. But I think we've all known people in our lives that all their friends around them keep reinforcing their bad behavior and no one will tell them the truth. That's us. We're not sharing the truth either because we always want to be the good guy, the affirming guy. We always want to say whatever they want to hear. What if we're part of the problem? What if we're not the good guys, but we're trying to be? Sometimes God uses the bad guys to correct the good guys so they don't become the bad guys. King David, you all remember how he kind of started out? Everyone focuses on the fact that he was ignored out with the sheep. Right? And they're like, oh, he must not be very gifted. That guy was crazy gifted. The only reason he was in there was because their society did not have a value on youth. That was the only reason. Because if you want to talk about his gifting, the minute he emerges out of the fields, you know what he does? He runs at a giant believing he can kill him with one rock. That's a pretty confident young man. The first thing they write about him is he's absolutely handsome. He's handsome, charismatic, powerful, confident, strong, gifted, anointed. This guy's going to become a monster. Except he ends up under the leadership of a psychotic King Saul. Who's demon possessed and freaking out and self-absorbed and throwing spears at his head and doing all kinds of stuff. So that by the time David takes the throne, he said, I don't know what kind of king I'll be, but I'm not going to be one like that. Sometimes God uses the bad guys to chase the bad guys out of you. Here's my bottom line. Can I have the prayer team come on up here as we close? Here's my bottom line. When we watch the news, can we please not go to snap judgment about God failing at his job? Can we please give him some time to sort stuff out? When you see these bad guys rising up and causing problems, could it be that God has a deeper plan in mind? Could it be that he's rooting out bad guys by bad guys? Could it be that he's stimulating the nation or the region or the system to want good people in power? Could it be that he's doing something bigger than our viewpoint? Here's my final challenge to you. There are some of us in this room that have been with the Lord for a long time. Some of us just by chronological age. We've been around for a number of decades. We've been walking with God. Here's something I need from you. You have an insight that the young people do not have today. You have history that you can say, I remember kids when the Cuban Missile Crisis was a big deal. I remember when we this person, this nation used to be the bad guys. Oh, then we switched, and now this nation is the bad guy. Oh, now we switched, and now this nation is the bad guy. I remember when it felt like the whole church was saying, Jesus is probably coming tonight because the world can't get any worse. I remember the trends and the fads that came through the church that kept saying things like, 
The whole world's going to hell and there is no hope. I've been there, kids, seen it, done it, and Jesus still wins. Amen? I need the more aged saints to be the calming influence, to be the wise influence, to be the ones that say, we can do this, kids. This is not the end of the church. This is not the end of Jesus's movement. We've seen worse and we walked through the fire and we got on the other side. I need the seasoned saints to bring us faith, hope, and love. What I cannot have is that if you are part of the problem, where are we going to go? If you're the one inflaming the fear, if you're the one talking about the world going to hell, if you're the one perpetuating all the lack of faith, who are we supposed to learn from? I know you see yourself as an island And you're just processing your own stuff. Here's the problem. You're not. You have to lead us into freedom and hope again. You have to give us perspective on the victory of Jesus. Because we don't know yet how it's going to go. You do. Please look through the lenses of confidence in Jesus. Pour that down upon us. We need you. Amen? Let's go ahead and close in prayer and we'll pray for the anointing of the prayer team here. Heavenly Father, we got a lot of situations that are messy. Stuff that's so frustrating for us. Things that make us afraid. And God, your solutions that you're bringing out looks like two steps backwards. We're having a really, really hard time seeing the light. But we trust you. And we truly believe that you are a great king, an incredible leader. We believe that you have solutions. We believe that you are advancing the cause of your people. We believe that you know how to run justice. We believe that you know how to lead revolution. So God, would you open our eyes to join you? You are great. Holy Spirit, would you anoint this altar so that every prayer request that comes up here would be met with your power. That Father, each and every prayer team member would be anointed to be able to call heaven down here on earth. That Lord, that those that are sick would be made well. Those that are confused would be made clear. Those that are struggling would be victorious. That, Lord, through the prayers of your saints, mighty things would happen. God, would you be with each and every one of us today and our sweet sister Sue. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful weekend.